morning, everyone. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. A few of you, thank you so much. Hey, we're so glad that you're here this morning. And, and I just want to tell you, this is the best day of the year for Christians, right? Is Resurrection Sunday. This is, this, this is the day that we celebrate and we recognize the ultimate power of Jesus Christ to overcome death, to overcome everything, the sins of the world, everything that Satan could throw at him, and to fulfill God's plan for redemption of mankind through his resurrection. And so this is a great day to be a part of God's church. And as, as Jeremy mentioned just a minute ago, we want you to follow along this morning in our message time and engage the Word of God. So there's a couple ways you can do that. You can do that with a Bible. If you brought your paper Bible, uh, like I did, we're going to be in John's Gospel. We're going to begin this morning in chapter 3. So if you want to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 3, that's where we're going to begin this morning. Now, if you brought your device this morning, maybe you brought your phone, your iPad, your tablet, we encourage you to be on your phone during a sermon, okay? But you know, you're not playing Candy Crush or looking at the weather or watching YouTube, okay? Unless it's the live stream, and that's a little weird. But uh, we, we want you to engage the Word of God. So that if you download the Oakwood app, there's actually a place in there that says Sermon Notes, and all the scriptures and all the bullet points and everything will be there for you this morning. Uh, man, just a great time to be a part of God's church. And so we want you to engage, allow the Lord to speak to you this morning. What's exciting about Christianity, more than any other religion in all of the world, is that Christianity's founder is not in his tomb. If you go to any other faith in the entire world, you can find a tomb there with somebody's body still there. But with Jesus Christ and Christianity and those that follow Jesus, we go to the tomb and we find that it is, it is empty. And, and we have proof of that throughout Scripture. We have extra biblical proof out there in historical accounts outside of the Bible that this is actually an event in history that took place. It is not a philosophy. It's not just a, a teaching. It's not just an assumption. It is really real. And Christianity is different because we have a risen and powerful Savior. Now, this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different for Easter uh, than, than we've ever really done before. Today, I'm actually going to share with you the backstory of Easter. The backstory of a very important part of our Easter story that we all kind of just like, we know about it, and we assume it, and, and it's really exciting. But, you know, I mean, we're Americans, right? I mean... We like to know the backstory. It's like, give me the lowdown. I mean, that's what reality television is all about, right? It's like, we want, to, we want to know the real stuff. We want to know behind the scenes what was really going on. And this morning, <clears throat> I'm going to share with you a story about a couple of guys that are part of the Easter story, and maybe it's an angle that you've never thought about. Maybe it's something that you've never reflected on, or maybe it's something you've thought about, but it's been a while, on how these two characters that are in the scripture actually have a huge part in making Easter what we celebrate and what we observe today, making Easter what it is today. And it's a couple people that you, you probably haven't, haven't thought of. But these two characters were probably starting their life at odds with Jesus Christ, and then they became believers in Jesus Christ, and they grow to such a point that they make decisions that affect the Easter story in a way that, that will live on for eternity. And what I'm about to share with you, if it didn't happen this way, then Jesus wouldn't have risen from the grave and there wouldn't be an empty tomb. Because that's not what they did with crucified people back in Jesus' day. 
If you were crucified on a cross, what the Romans liked to do is they liked to leave the bodies on there for a few days after the people had died when they were crucified and let them begin to rot. And then they would pry them off of those crosses and then they would actually do one of two things with them. They would either take them to a mass burial grave and just throw the bodies in. It was just like a ditch and they would just throw the bodies in. Or what they would do is they would pry them off the cross and they would take them to this smoldering trash heap just outside of Jerusalem. It was a place called Gehenna. Gehenna is also a reference to hell sometimes. And Gehenna was literally a smoldering trash heap where they took all the garbage of Jerusalem and put it out there. And sometimes they would take the bodies off of those crosses and throw them into Gehenna. Now, sometimes, you know, those families, they wanted to retrieve their loved one and give them a proper burial. But the Romans were so cruel that they would take people off the crosses, take them over to the trash heap, put them into Gehenna, literally, and they would not let you go retrieve your loved one's body. In fact, you were to go on with your life like they had never existed. I mean, how cruel is that? And if a couple of these characters that we're about to meet hadn't done something different, there wouldn't be an empty tomb. Jesus would have arose. He had the power to do that. It didn't matter where he was. But we wouldn't be celebrating an empty tomb. It may, he may have arose from a, a mass grave or from the trash heap just outside of Jerusalem. But the fact is, is that this happened the way that it did because a couple of men decided to put their faith in Jesus and to trust him. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to start by saying this, that really nobody anticipated the resurrection. Now, you may say, oh, wait a second. There were people that went to the tomb that morning. Obviously, they went there because they thought Jesus was alive, and they went, no, no, no. They went with burial spices because Jesus had been wrapped up so hurriedly because of the Passover and some of the Jewish laws and rules. No, they were there to make sure that he got a proper burial and to check upon the grave. And you may say, well, how do you know this? Well, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, in verse 2, some of the ladies had gone to the tomb, had rushed to the tomb that morning, and these ladies were, were, were saying, we don't know what they have done with our Lord, and we do not know where they have taken him. And the first thing it made me think about when I read that was, who's they? And, and obviously they thought there were grave robbers or somebody, somebody had tampered with a, with a tomb or something. But they didn't say, oh, Jesus is alive, and that's why there was no one there at the tomb when we rolled the stone away this morning. In Mark's, in Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 16, verse 3, there's actually a verse that talks about the stone. And they're walking to the tomb, and they're wondering who's going to roll the stone away so they could wrap Jesus' body better than, it had, than they had done on Friday. And so, so they were actually talking about who's going to move the stone away. So they weren't expecting the stone to be moved away and there to be a resurrected Savior in an empty tomb. And then there's also the account in Luke's gospel in chapter 24, verse 11 where it says that the women had gone to the tomb and they were excited and they had their encounter with the angel and they, they ran back to tell the disciples and they're telling the disciples, hey, Jesus is alive, he's risen, we just came from the tomb and, and the disciple, it says in the scripture, these are Jesus' closest friends, they'd heard all about this, Jesus had told them what was going to happen. The closest friends of Jesus, it says in the scripture that it was like the women were speaking nonsense to them. They just couldn't wrap their minds around Jesus being alive. To the point that it says that Peter and John take off 
and some of the other disciples, they take off and they're running to the tomb to go check it out because they just can't, it was like nonsense. You see, no one expected there to be a resurrection. They didn't anticipate that going in. But what I'm going to share with you today is a story of two characters and their names, because I know you've been waiting, you're like, what are, what are their names? Who are the characters? The names are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They're Pharisees, which means they're religious elitists holding on tight to Judaism. But they're not just Pharisees, teachers of the law. They are actually part of the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council. So they were the Pharisees amongst Pharisees, some of the highest rank and order that you could be with the Jews at that time. And there's an account where we begin our passage this morning in John chapter 3 where a man named Nicodemus, part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, came to Jesus to ask him a question. And this is a question that all of us ask at some point in our life. Let's pick up the text there. It's John chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Did you notice what that is right there? Nickelodeon's Nick at night. This is the original, Nick at night, okay? Nicodemus comes to Jesus tonight, Nick at night. So remember that. Remember that. This is actually key to the story later. He came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. How does he know that? For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus had been doing miracles. He'd been doing miraculous things. He was teaching and saying things. Things were out of his mouth that just... No human had ever said those things. I mean, it was just divine. In verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Kind of a weird response. It's almost like Jesus is answering a question, but he didn't ask anything. He just said, you know, are you from God? Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. You know, the water, when the mother's water breaks, I mean, that's part of being born, right? The amniotic fluid, the water. But he's saying to be born again, you must be born human and born of water, but also of the Spirit, capital S, talking about the Holy Spirit. You see, flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sounds, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. I'm going to pause here for a moment. He's confused. Do you see the question? How can this be that one has to be born again? Because I'm a religious elitist, and I know how this religious stuff works. And we've been keeping the law, and we've been doing our best to keep the law. And, and the law of God is holy, and is pure, and it's good, and, and we are called to live to that standard. Now, I know we fail miserably, but... We are called to live to that standard. And so this religious stuff is about behaving. It's not about being born again, being born a second time. You see, you see, we behave to get to heaven. 
And yet Jesus is going to turn it on into something totally different and say it's about faith, it's about belief. Look at verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And listen to this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And do you remember that? That's kind of a, another weird part of this story is Jesus is talking about Moses. I mean, Moses is like way back in the Old Testament. And what's he talking about? He's just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. What snake in the wilderness? And so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Well, it's actually a reference back to Numbers 21 in the Old Testament. And what it was, if you remember, the people of Israel were sinning against God. There was this pattern that they would come to God and then they'd sin and turn away from God and then they'd come back to God. Well, God sometimes passed judgment and let his people Israel suffer because of their sinful choices. And at one of those times where they were complaining and, and, and moving against God, God let snakes come amongst the people, and there were poisonous snakes, and the snakes would bite them, and people were dying. And they cried out to Moses, we're sorry for our sins, and, and please save us. You know, cry out to God on our behalf, Moses, and cry out on our behalf, and, 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 and please, please go appeal to God on our behalf. And God says, all right. All right, I want you to take an image of the snakes, like these snakes that are crawling around biting everybody. I want you to put it on this pole that's way high up, and I want you to take it out there. And anyone who's bitten by a snake that looks up and sees the snake on the top of this really long pole, they'll be healed. And that's exactly what God did. That's exactly what happened. And it's interesting because Jesus is using this here, and it's a foreshadowing for this Pharisee. He's like, this guy knows the law. He knows what Numbers 21 is. He probably memorized it in third grade on his pathway to becoming a Pharisee and a teacher of the law and part of the Sanhedrin here. He knows this, and so Jesus says to him, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Nicodemus, I'm sure, was like, what in the world? He maybe didn't understand it fully in the moment. It's interesting in verse 3 there, I kind of pointed out earlier where Jesus, it's like, he, he, it's, it's like he's answering a question before it was asked. Now, Jesus does this all throughout the Gospels because he's the Son of God, Okay. People come to him, and they've got a question in their mind. Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he'll just answer their question before they even ask it. And that's, in essence, what happens here. But what's the real question that Nicodemus is seeking here? How do I know that I have right standing with God? How do I know that when I die, that I might be in God's favor enough that I would get to go to heaven instead of hell? That I could actually have hope of eternal life in heaven. So when I die, I might actually go and be with God. How can I have assurance that God knows me, that God knows my name? And essentially, Nicodemus, a Pharisee here, was asking, how can I know for sure 
that I can gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And the only way that he can sleep at night or rest is to know salvation from God. And Jesus said the only way to do that is you've got to be born again. And there's going to be this moment where just like the snake had saved the people who had been bitten in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And all who believe in him will have eternal life. You see, Jesus is already laying the foundation here. It's not a behavior control thing. It's a belief and faith thing. So let's fast forward in our story. Just a few chapters. We're in John chapter 3. Let's go to John uh, chapter 7, verse 28. We pick up some more of what's going on in Jesus' life, but it also involves Nicodemus. Verse 28 says, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, he cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. He's talking about the heavenly father God. Verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I mean, he's talking, he's talking here to, to the Pharisees, and they're wanting him arrested. They want him off the streets. He's inciting like rebellion here, and this feels like blasphemy. I mean, who does he think he is? The son of God? Verse 31, still many in the crowd believed in him. And they said, when the Messiah comes, he will perform more signs than this man? Because Jesus had been doing so many miracles and so many signs for the people. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Now fast forward to verse 45. It says, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests after they were sent to arrest Jesus. They went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Well, no one ever spoke the way that this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on all of them. And here he is again in verse 50. Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier, and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Hmm. Nick at night. Same guy. Seems like he's kind of standing up for Jesus a little bit here. Maybe that encounter back in in chapter 3, had some bearing on his life. His faith is growing. He might be starting to believe. And as we continue in John's gospel, the next chapter in chapter 8 is the famous passage about the woman who's caught in adultery. They're about to stone her to death, and Jesus intervenes and says, Hey, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he tells that lady, he says, I don't condemn you. Quit sinning. You're only hurting yourself. Turn away from your sin and walk in newness of life. You get to chapter 9 and Jesus heals a blind man and it starts this power struggle again with the Pharisees who are wanting him arrested, who are wanting him silenced, who are wanting him squelched. He embarrasses the Pharisees as they retort back and forth. 
And really chapters 9 and 10 kind of talk about these exchanges back and forth that Jesus is doing teaching, the Pharisees are rebuking it. And then you get to chapter 11. It's a story about a guy named Lazarus. Do you know the story of Lazarus? Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. His sisters were very concerned about him because he was ill. They send for Jesus and Jesus delays in coming and Lazarus actually dies. He passes away. And Lazarus is put into this tomb. And a stone is put over the front of the tomb. Now he's been there four days. And Jesus shows up and he says, remove the stone from the tomb. Four days. It's, it's funny because in the KJV, it actually says, we don't want to remove the stone because he stinketh. Okay? Can't you just talk to him through the rock, Jesus? I mean, whatever you need to say to Lazarus, just, just say it through the stone. And Jesus is like, no, remove the rock. And if you know the story, Jesus is amazing. He calls Lazarus out, and Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's right after that in chapter 11, right after that, the Pharisees call a special meeting of the Sanhedrin, and they're worried about people following Jesus. They're worried about what the Romans will do. Some of the things that Jesus has said have made them question that, you know, what's going to happen to the temple? What's going to happen to our, our nation? And then it says in John chapter 11, verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. From that day on, they want to kill Jesus. And so they send the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And if it's involving the Sanhedrin, I'm sure Nicodemus is there. I'm sure Joseph of Arimathea is there. They, they got to know what's going on. They, they don't do anything here, but they are aware. You see, sometimes people are hesitant to go all in with Jesus. And that may be the story of some of us here today. We're hesitant to go all in with Jesus. Why? Because it's going to cost something. It is. I'm not going to stand up here as a pastor and tell you this morning, if you follow Jesus, it's like skipping through the meadow with flowers. Life is great. You'll never have any issues. I'd be speaking against the very words of Jesus when he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. It will cost you something. In fact, in Luke 14, Jesus has a whole section where he talks about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus Christ. There will be a cost, and because there's a cost, sometimes people are hesitant to go all in with Jesus. And sometimes it's fear, it's scary. I mean, what would happen to Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea here if they were to try to stand up for Jesus and not let him be arrested by the temple guards? And it's after that we continue in our story. After Jesus was arrested, he goes before a Roman, a Roman person named Pilate, who Jesus, he has Jesus scourged to try to hush the people, to get them to calm down, to, to make them think, okay, he suffered enough. But then there's all these trials, and, and you probably know the Easter story. There's all these trials. Then there's the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus actually drags a cross all the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he's crucified between two thieves on a cross. And he dies. It says that actually after he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, that his disciples scattered. 
We know that John was at the cross, but we don't know if any of the other disciples were there. They're confused. They're thinking in their minds, if Jesus was sent from God, Peter and the disciples, Peter denies, denies him three times. They're running away. They're in hiding. They're confused. You almost feel like it's this critical juncture where if the 12 disciples don't believe, if those that are closest to Jesus give up hope, if these guys abandon Jesus, if these guys are confused and sad, but then I wonder if this was the moment at the crucifixion that pushed Nicodemus and Joseph, the Pharisees, over the edge. We have evidence from Scripture to believe that both of these men were there because of something that happens after Jesus dies. But if you could picture the scene that Jesus is on the cross and there's a fair-sized crowd there. There's all these going-ons, and I just picture that there's the Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are just there, and they're acting like Sanhedrin, like, yeah, yeah, he got what he deserved. Oh, my goodness, what are we doing? This guy was innocent. All he ever did was, was heal people and help people and preach the kingdom of God and love, and he did these miraculous signs. What are we doing? Yeah, 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 he got what he, he got what he, what he had coming, yeah. What are we doing? I picture Nicodemus and Joseph standing back there. Man, what is going on? And then I wonder if there was this moment where they look up at Jesus on the cross. And I wonder if Nicodemus went back to his Nick at night moment in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, if something clicked with him in that moment and it just solidified his faith in Jesus Christ. Because in John 3, 14 and 15, which we read earlier, it says this. Just as Moses was lifted, had lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And I wonder if you looked at Jesus lifted up at the cross and being a good Pharisee and remembering Numbers 21 and remembering also the conversation that he had with Jesus at night. Where Jesus turns it and he says it's not, it's not how everyone behaves, it's how everyone believes. It's where you put your faith, it's where you put your trust in life and for eternal life. It has to be in the one who is lifted up. And just as the people of Israel, bitten by snakes had looked up and, and been healed by the snake on a pole. Now the people who had been bitten by sin were now looking up to Jesus Christ. We're going to be healed by his death as he is lifted up. I wonder if that was the moment for Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And they learned this lesson that faith comes first and behavior follows belief. Faith comes first. Put your faith and you sell all out to Jesus Christ. Faith comes first and behavior follows belief. You know these men were well versed in scripture. They knew all the prophecies of the Messiah. I wonder if this one came pouring back into the, to, to these two men's minds. Listen to this, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds 
we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And I wonder as they were gazing upon Jesus, that's when Nicodemus and Joseph decided to take a risk and to follow Jesus and in their faith do something that's going to change Easter forever. Skip ahead to John 19, beginning with verse 38. Later, if you look at the subheading just above this, it says the death of Jesus. It records his last moments, he's died. And it says later, that was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, darkness came over the earth, a huge earthquake. People that were dead in their tombs were coming out. Temple veil was torn when Jesus dies in that moment. So just a little time later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. What in the world? A Pharisee, a part of the Sanhedrin, is going to Pilate, which is a risk, a Roman authority, and asking for the body of Jesus, who they were wanting to kill and get rid of. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Did you read that? Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but look, look at the next part. But secretly... Because he feared the Jewish leaders. But with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus. Nick at night. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, there was a new tomb to which no one had ever been laid. We find out in reading one of the other gospel accounts that Joseph of Arimathea had purchased this tomb. Some people believe for himself someday. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation right before the Sabbath, and there's all these laws, by sundown that night, Jesus has to be in the grave. We can't work. We can't do anything more. This had to happen really fast. They wrap him up because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. That's how we get the empty tomb. There's a couple of Pharisees put their faith in Jesus. You see, Jesus changed these Pharisees' lives so much, they risked everything to follow him. Trust me. They risked everything. Everything they had built their whole life for was at risk for taking care of Jesus. And now you know the backstory of Easter. How do we get to an empty tomb? It's two Pharisees. They finally go all in. They finally put all of their trust in Jesus. And you know the truth that Jesus only borrowed that tomb Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday morning because he rose again. And that redemption, that power of the resurrection is the power that God has to resurrect our lives even today. And isn't it cool how a couple of guys named Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea put their faith in Jesus Christ 
and are a part of the Easter story that they put Jesus in this tomb so that when we celebrate Easter, we can claim an empty tomb, not a garbage heap, but an empty tomb because these men encountered Jesus Christ. And Jesus did a work of faith and salvation in their lives, in their lives and he wants to do the same in yours. And I want to share this with you this morning. If you're outside of Jesus this morning, at the end of this service, there's going to be some elders and some staff down front here, and they would love to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe today, maybe during this message, you felt something, a tug of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you came to this point, you're like, you know what, I've got to, I've got to change my life. I've been doing, doing life on my terms and going my own way. I need, I need to go God's way. I, I believe because, I, yeah, I can picture Jesus on the cross taking that crucifixion for my sins and for my transgressions and looking upon him to be healed. And that power that resurrects lives needs to resurrect my life because I'm lost. And I don't have hope. I don't have a chance of standing before God. I don't have a hope of heaven without Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's why your only hope and my only hope and the only hope of Nicodemus and Joseph was to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you make that decision.